Well, chapter 5 was very, very heavy. Chapter 5 was very Christological. And I'm not finished with it, but just to reiterate what we talked about last week, Jesus claimed to be God. And the purpose of the book of John is so that we would believe that Jesus is God, and He is the Son of God. And if we believe this and trust this, we will have eternal life. And so Jesus, in His dissertation, after, after sign number three, after He healed uh, the man at the pool of Bethesda, uh, who had been sitting there for 38 years, He did that on purpose on the Sabbath so he could expose the hypocrisy of the Jews and the Pharisees who cared not about the man, but cared more about their own rules that Jesus broke. And so Jesus used this opportunity uh, to teach us about who he is, and he did it on purpose. And then he made five claims uh, in verses 16 through, uh, uh, through verse uh, 30. And he claimed five things. If you got a lesson 11, I'm not going to go over it again, but I do want to bring them up again. He made five claims that he was equal with God the Father. And first thing he said, he was equal in his person. And uh, he said, my, my works, my Father's works, and I have been working. So Jesus equated himself with the Father in person. And we looked at all the verses in John. We looked at 335. We looked at 646, 818. 1030, 14:28 and 16:28 and so we looked at all the evidences to support the claim that Jesus is equal with God in his personage. We looked at that. Then we looked at the fact that he was equal to God in his works and uh, Jesus asserted harmony with the Father. The works the Father gave him to do, he did. And we talked about the different works. We talked about the equality of the works and the purposes of the works. And then we talked about uh, the he said, greater works I'm going to do. Not only are you going to see me raise a man and heal a man from the pool of Bethesda, but I am going to do greater works. And then he talks about those greater works. We started with that. We ended with that. The greater works were resurrection from the dead. And we talked about these great works that he was going to accomplish, his own resurrection, and then his resurrection of all men. All men will be resurrected. Some will be resurrected to life. Some will be resurrected to condemnation. So we talked about that. And then the last thing we, uh, our third thing we said that God was equal with His power and His sovereignty. Talked about that. And we talked about He's equal to God in His judgment. And we talked about the verse that is pretty difficult to understand. He says, verse 22. Remember what we talked about this verse. For the Father judges no one, but is committed all judgment to the Son. What did we say about that? We looked at other verses that says that Jesus is going to be the judge. So how did we distinguish what that verse meant? When we, when he said, the Father judges no one, but gives all judgment to the Son. What did we talk about? Do you remember? We looked at the Old Testament where God is the judge, and we're all going to stand before the just judge, and the just judge will do what's right. So we talked about the Father's role in judging. We talked about this verse specifically, that the Father judges no one but leaves all judgment to the Son. And what did we say about that verse? Anybody remember? Complicated verse. I just wanted to, to, to uh, make sure you understood that verse. Through the Son, 
the Son will actually be that's right, right. And we talked about God is a spirit. God is invisible. No one has seen God. And Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead. He is who God is in physical form. So He came as man to demonstrate who God is. He exegetes God. So Jesus is the one who is going to judge because He is the one who is visible to see. And He's going to be standing. We're going to be standing before Him. So He's going to be the judge. We will not be judged by an invisible God the Father as, as we talked about. But we talked about that and Jesus' role and His submission and His servanthood. We talked about all these things. But that's what it meant. They both judge, but, but God has chosen His Son to govern the world and to judge the world. Just like He chose His Son to be the agent of creation. We talked about that. One God, three different persons, three different... Uh, roles, three responsibilities, three different persons, although distinct, yet they are equal in uh, in their glory and their attributes and in their nature. So we talked about that. And then the last thing we talked about was that uh, one of the reasons why he's given judgment to his son, and we saw that in verse 23, so that all would honor the son just as they honor the father. So one of the reasons, as Dwayne mentioned, and as we mentioned, that one of the reasons why the judgment has been placed on the, this responsibility on the Son is so that we would honor the Son, we would treat Him preciously, we'd have the same respect for Him as we do the Father. And so we talked about that in great detail. Now, we are uh, going to look at, we talked about the resurrection uh, in great detail, that all would be resurrected. And we talked about there is a distinction between the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of the uh, of the lost and the saved. We talked about that, and then uh, uh, we talked about in great detail. Uh, he who verse twenty four, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and will not come into judgment. We talked about the penal judgment. We talked about the wrath absorbed by by Christ. And we talked about uh, all those facets. So that's sort of where we are. Quick rundown. Now we're on verse 31. As we start, uh, we end, we're on lesson uh, 11, and we're in uh, item number 7. I've called this the fivefold witness. Uh, my Bible says fourfold, but I added one. Uh, I think it's in the text. So I'm going to say it's a fivefold witness. Your Bible may say four, your commentators may, may say four. Uh, I put five, and I'll show you how I've marked them out here. But the reason why Jesus has made all these claims, He's claimed to be God. He's claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He's claimed all these claims of His deity as He tells truth to the Jews and to the Pharisees and to the crowds that flock to see Him just because they're curious. Not because they believe, but they want to see a miracle. They want to see... Uh, something charismatic event uh, to satisfy them and for their own benefit. So Jesus, what He does, after He makes His claim, He then supports His claim by evidence. Scripture always supports its claims, and there's always evidence. There's no such thing as just blind faith. We trust in the claims of Christ and the Word of God, and all of the claims are evidenced by His creation, by His providential works, by His life, by His nature. So we are never uh, called to believe in something that doesn't have support for. 
Just because it's, it's just because it's the evidence, it's the evidence of things not seen. So we may not understand uh, things that occur, but there's evidence for them and there's support for them, and we're never called to just blindly believe in in Him, the object of faith, without supporting evidence. And so we see Jesus after He makes His claims, He gives supporting evidence. And the background for this, verse thirty-one. <coughs> Let me read this real quick. Uh, uh, 5.31, If I bear witness of myself, my witness isn't true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, that's the baptizer, and he is borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from John the baptizer, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, they bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I don't receive my honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you'll receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and don't seek the honor that comes only from God? Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus bases the, his claims on evidence, and he bases this upon Scripture in the Old Testament. And so when he says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true, what was the law's rules about witnessing and whether or not something was true or not and whether or not if someone if I accuse Dan of something what is the biblical basis for my accusation two or three witnesses and we find that in Deuteronomy 17:6 Jesus came to fulfill the law every dot and every crossing of the T he did not come to Change the law. He did not come to replace the law, but he came to fulfill it completely in himself. And so uh, we see this. He came to fulfill the law, and he did it literally. Seventeen six. This is about under the section of justice and applying justice. Seventeen six. Deuteronomy. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. What does that do? That you have two or three witnesses. What takes away doubt. Takes away doubt. It protects the innocent. Mm -hmm. It, it, It makes sure that justice is being accomplished. And so Jesus said, you need two or three witnesses. If we have a problem within our church... And if there is an accusation made against one of us in the church, what does the Matthew 18 say? There has to be witnesses. There can't. Just, I just can't say, well, Russell did this. I have to have evidence. 
And, and we have to go to Him first and, and, and tell Him our complaint and give Him the opportunity to repent of that. And then if He won't, we go to the church body themselves. We've done that in this church over the years, but it's for protection, to so make sure that the right thing is accomplished. Look at Deuteronomy 19, uh, uh, verse 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or in any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And so that is to establish justice, and that is to make sure there's going to be fair and equal punishment for the crime. So Jesus bases everything he's about to say based upon Old Testament law, and he bases upon the, the principle of there has to be two or three witnesses. So Jesus, to make it abundantly clear that his claims are real, that he is God, he's not a lunatic, he's not a liar, he is who he says he is, he goes above and beyond that and he says, I have five witnesses that, that will prove that I am who I say I am and that through me you will have eternal life. So he uses these verses to give this five-fold witness. And the first witness that we see... It's not the first one. It's the first one I'm going to talk about. Uh, the first witness is John the Baptizer. He is the first witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember, He was ordained. He was chosen. He was foretold that He would come, and He was born miraculously. And He came to do one thing, to be a preparer of the way of the Lord. He was called and he was obedient. He lived in the desert. He was a solitary man and he preached, repent. He preached, turn. He baptized, prepare men's hearts for the coming of the Messiah. He was forerunner of the Messiah. And he told of the Messiah. He was a humble man. Remember what he said? He said, I am just a, I am just a messenger. He said, I came to, to tell about the bride and the bridegroom, the church and Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. He said, now that the bridegroom has come, I rejoice, okay, that the bride has come and I go into the background. I must decrease, he must increase. So John the baptizer is a witness of Jesus Christ. Look what it says about uh, 33. You have sent to John the baptizer, and he has bore witness to the truth. We've talked about this in the first few chapters of the book of John, that he told the truth. He told them to repent. He, he said, the axe is laid to the trees, and unless you repent, you're going to be cut down. So he was a bold witness. And what did, it, what did, what did Jesus say about the John the Baptist? What did Jesus himself say about John the Baptist? Huh? Among those born among women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was a witness to Christ. And look what he says about him. He was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a while to rejoice in His light. John the baptizer is like we are the church. We are supposed to be salt and light. And we are to expose darkness. And we're not to cover our light, but we are to put it on a hill so that it shines out. Uh, John the baptizer is a forerunner of the church. And uh, as he exclaimed, coming of Christ, we the church exclaim the coming of Christ. And we are to be light uh 
Uh, we are to be little lights that expose the true light. And so John the baptizer was the light, and we are to be the light, and he did his task faithfully. When it says they were willing to rejoice in his light for a while, what does that mean? They thought he was Elijah. They thought he was a prophet. Some may have thought he was the Messiah. Uh, but it says for a while. What, what changed things? Why does it say they were rejoicing in his light for a while? And what, that implies what? Until Christ comes. And also the message of repentance and turn or burn uh, didn't, uh, wasn't received well by the people. And eventually, Herod's, was it his niece that tricked Herod and when he was drunk into beheading John the baptizer? So it, for a while, as Sally said, until the time of Christ, until the message got redundant and old and convicting, and when he was no longer necessary, for a while, they did not receive the light because men loved darkness rather than light and they didn't want to be exposed by John the Baptizer's preaching. So I think all those things mean the same thing. So I think, uh, uh, and Jesus says, I don't need, verse 34 back up, I don't need to receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Sometimes Jesus speaks anthropomorphically. He speaks to us so in language we can hear. And so John the baptizer was anthropomorphic in the sense that he preached truth that men could understand. Okay? And so, but Jesus did not need that. But Jesus did that to fulfill prophecy and for the benefit of men. And so we see the fivefold witness. The next one we see is Jesus' works. All of his works testified that he is who he says he was. He did the works of his father. And all the works the father gave him to do, he did. And the purpose of all the works was to glorify the father. And so that men would know who Jesus was. Remember sign one was one of the works he did. And Jesus did sign one for what reason? Review our signs. The first sign was what? Water into wine. And what did the water and the wine mean? What work was that that was a witness to Jesus? The water in the water pots is the law, right? And the changing of the old to the new. The wine is the coming of Christ. It's going to foreshadow His death, burial, and resurrection. So He came to fulfill the law, and because the law couldn't save, because men are sinners, He came to save men, okay? Just like the children of Israel couldn't go into the promised land by Moses, the law, they had to go into the promised land by Joshua, Jesus saves, right? Great picture in the Old Testament. So Jesus' works give evidence He is who He says He is, and we see that in verse 36, I have greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus' works were, was witness number two, that He is who He says He is. For us, 
I would ask me and I would ask you, do your works give evidence that you are in Christ? Do your works give evidence that you are in Christ? Does your daily walk, is it consistent and faithful and it give evidence that you have been regenerated by God's Spirit and you are in Christ? Just a parenthetical uh, just a, something to think about. Do your works demonstrate your claims as Jesus' works demonstrated His claims? The third one we see is the Father Himself is a, is a witness that Jesus is who He says He is. And that would be found in verse 37 and 38. The Father Himself... Who sent me has testified of me. And where do we see that demonstrated? Do you remember? What about when he was baptized? What did he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in another of the, of the uh, synoptic it says, hear him. Okay? So I'm pleased. This is my son. Hear him. Hear him. So the Father Himself says that. Says you have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His voice, but you do not have His word abiding in you, because whom He sent Him you do not believe. This is what separates Christianity from all other faiths, religions. That Jesus is the Son of God. And that access to the Father absolutely is only exclusively through Him. And that Jesus, as God, died for men. No other faith makes a claim that God would die for the people. But Christianity says God died for His people. And that you must understand that Jesus is God. He is the incarnate God. He died for His people. So you must understand. Did you have a hand raised? Yes, sir. It is. It is, and your dear wife read that the last time you were here. So read it again, brother. One. Yes. That is the gospel. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And though His access, excuse me, and through Him, the reconciliation... Wait, I've lost my place here. Oh, yeah. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Excellent.
That is the Father himself being a witness that Jesus is who he says he was. The next witness we have, and we could go over that and develop that, uh, scriptures themselves are witness that Jesus is who he says he is. And the wonderful thing he says about this, and remember the road to Emmaus. Uh, remember that. Look back with me to uh, uh, put Luke, uh, Luke 24. Uh, Luke 24, and that would be found in verses uh, 25 through 27 and uh, 31. When Jesus says, Scriptures Himself testify of me, I want everybody to understand this, that from Genesis to the Revelation is all about Jesus. Jesus is preached in every book of the Bible. And we remember we did the minor prophets. Some of you said, I had no idea. He's in every book of the Bible. Everything is written about Him and for Him and to Him and through Him because of Him. And so we see this, that Jesus says the Scripture themselves give evidence that I am who I say I am. Remember the road to Emmaus after Jesus had died and there was great sadness and there was a great misunderstanding. Look at Luke 24. We have record of these two walking to the road to Emmaus. And uh, look what Jesus is walking alongside of them. He pretends ignorance of fact that he said, what are you talking about? You know, they, they, they thought that he was the Messiah. They thought he was going to come set up his political kingdom. They thought he was going to rescue them from Roman rule, that he was going to be the fulfillment of Old Testament. And uh, and uh, they didn't see him. Their eyes were restrained. Jesus is walking along. Look at verse 18. The, the one of them whose name was Cloopus answered and said, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem that you don't know what's happened in these last couple of days? And Jesus says, What things? And they said, The things about Jesus. Jesus, what a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him, condemned him to death and crucified him. But we were hoping he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Remember, uh, Sheila, two weeks ago, asked, well, who do they think the Messiah was? They thought he was this king who was going to set up his earthly role and rescue them from, from Rome and, and be their rescuer. He said, besides all these things, today is the third day since these things happened. And certain women who arrived at the t- tomb early astonished us when they didn't find his body, saying that they had, they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain one of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman, women had said. And But him they didn't see. Then Jesus said, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all of the Old Testament prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall in that conversation? (laughs) Jesus preached himself in the Old Testament before he came incarnate. And so we also see that in... uh, Did you you comment there, Dan? Yeah, Don. uh, There's a... Right now, Don MacArthur is going through a series on this verse 39 about the scriptures for you think I have eternal life. And he he really goes through all of these scriptures in the Old Testament that is talking about Jesus coming. And it really lays, if you really, and I, 
I, it, it really turned the light on for me to understand when it says search the scriptures. They didn't have any scriptures. I mean, all they had was the Old Testament. And when you, I kind of would usually kind of blow over that and not really pay attention to it. But that's all the Old Testament. And MacArthur goes through, you know, each one of these scriptures from Genesis on that's talking about Jesus. And he's saying, you know, these people didn't have any excuses. That's right, right. Because they've been, since Genesis, they've been foretelling that Jesus was coming. That's right. And all these scriptures that they're referring to was all talking about Jesus. All talking about him. Uh there's an excellent book. I've taught this book, and it's one of the best studies I've ever done. I've never heard such... I talk Jesus Christ our Lord, and it's a types, and it is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. John Wolverd, who is, used to be president of Dallas Theological, and it's an excellent book. And in it, all the types, everything, every verse, every type, every foreshadow, every prophecy about Jesus in the Old Testament uh, is in that book. And I did a study on it, it's, and I very well could do another one on that. It's a great, it's a great study. Uh, it's a good study. And it opens your eyes from the, from the color red of Rahab as she, as she, uh, as she put that scarlet, uh, uh, ne- uh, kerchief out there so that the men see that she, judgment was passed from her. All of the typing from the name of Benjamin, man of sorrows, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, it also is a dovetail with verse, uh, if you'll write down 1 Peter, uh, 10 through 12. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what matter of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So we see Jesus says, the Scriptures testify of me just for grins. I'm not going to do this long. But if we think about Old Testament Scriptures, I could, I could spend six months on this. I just want to highlight a few. And it starts... Early, early, early in Scripture. It starts with the marriage institution. The first institution ordained by God, but points to a spiritual truth of the oneness in Christ. Okay? Just as we are one with our wives or our husbands, we're one in Christ. And it's a beautiful picture of the intended intimacy between God, His people, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the marriage institution is the first Scripture that point to Jesus Christ. And it just goes on and on. Just the top of my head. Do you remember when they were thrown out of the Garden of Eden? What did God do for them? He provided animal skins to cover them. They tried fig leaves because of their shame at their sin and their nakedness and their awareness that they had fallen. But Jesus, God provided animal skin tunic which implies a blood sacrifice, right? We see that when God judged Satan for deceiving Satan, for bringing the world into sin. The first promise of Jesus Christ was Genesis 3.15. Does anybody remember that verse? 
The first promise of a Savior. Bruising of the heel and the crushing of the head. Speaking of the warfare. Speaking of, of Jesus Christ destroying His enemy, Satan. Although Satan would bruise his head at the crucifixion. So we see from then on, we see pictures. Do you remember when... Abraham was was going to put Isaac on sacrifice. What did God say to Isaac is to to Abraham as he's about to stab his own son? What did he say? This is Genesis 22. He said the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh will provide a sacrifice. And then we see a ram caught in the thicket. This is all a picture of the crucifixion and the crown of thorns. And we see the sacrifice. All of it, all of it, all of it is about Jesus. Do you understand these things? Rahab and the scarlet and the red scarlet. Do you remember the whole exodus is Jesus? Redemption from the slave block of sin. The Passover, the blood, the unleavened bread, which is sinlessness, no leaven, perfection, Jesus Christ offered up, on and on and on. Every, yes? You know, whenever, whenever I asked that question, what were they looking for? One of, the, one of the things I was thinking, they had all the evidence of the Scriptures of the Old Testament of what Christ was supposed to look like. Yes. And they completely ignored everything they knew and looked what they wanted. Yes. It's not that different than what we do. It's exactly the same. <laughs> and they wandered for 40 years. Yeah. Absolutely. I always tell people, don't give the Jews that hard of a time because they're just like you. That's exactly right. <laughs> Joseph, a picture, a type of Christ, hated by his brothers, spitefully treated, yet used to redeem the people. And we talk about Joseph, Joshua, the name. Jesus saves. Jesus saves, gets you over the Jordan River, not the works Moses. We talk about all that. We can talk about uh, the burning bush. When we talk about the seven I Ams, when, when, the, when, when I am that I am, the self-existent one, that's going to be dovetail into Jesus' claims of I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am this, I am that. We'll talk about all these in great detail, but uh, the bread, when we talk about, uh, we'll talk about this in a second, in this next sign, but the bread and the manna, all of these are types, symbolic, all point to Christ. The serpent in the wilderness on the pole, all of these things. Uh, the day of atonement, you talk about a, a type of Christ that pictures that the, uh, someone who has to go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. You talk about Leviticus 17. The blood is the life and, and blood must make atonement for sins of people. All of this is the gospel. Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. You see, Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes and it was always wrong. Right? First Samuel, Second Samuel, it's all in there. Uh, I would love to do that study, and we may do that. I was going to do Deuteronomy next, but we may have to modify it. But it's all in there. The Scriptures witness the authenticity of Jesus' claims. They are consistent. 
And they all say the same thing, that Jesus is who He says He was. And then lastly, He differentiates between the Scriptures themselves and He brings up Moses. Oh, the Jews love Moses. That's why God hid His body, because the Jews would have worshipped Moses, right? That's why they don't know where He's buried, because men have a tendency to worship. And so Jesus said, Moses wrote about Me. And so, I love what He says here. Uh, I love what Jesus says here. He says, look at verse uh, 45. Do you think that I accuse you? There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses... You would have been believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how are you going to believe my words? The people believe Moses. They trust. They said they believe Moses, but they really didn't believe Moses because Moses talked about Jesus, and so he uses Moses as an example of of a witness to his deity and claims, and the people should have. They had enough, but they refused, and God turns them over to reprobation, and he stops their ears, and he he keeps their eyes from seeing because they rebel against the Scriptures and Moses. So everybody understand that? Everybody understand the fivefold witness? Now... At least six months, maybe a year, separate chapter 5 from chapter 6. If chapter 5, you notice it happened on a uh, uh, chapter 5, we talked about this. This is a feast of the Jews. We don't know if that's the Passover or if this is a feast of dedications. I personally believe it's dedications. So that would have been in the fall. And so we're at Passover again, chapter 6. We are at Passover time, verse 4. The Passover is near. The Passover is in March, April. So at least five months, six months has passed, and it may be a whole year before we pick up the narrative again. So time has passed. And John, remember, is different than all the other synoptic writers. He doesn't record a lot of the miracles. This one is a recorded miracle in all the Gospels. But we understand from John that he purposely leaves gaps because this is why he was put on the planet to write about these things. But look what we see, John 21. So this gap of, of, of a not recording of his, his ministry in uh, Judah and Galilee... Uh, we understand this. Look what John says, the last verse of the book. There are many things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose even the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. So this gap in which some miracles were not described as by the other synoptic gospels, but what happens in this gap? Jesus is performing miracles. He is doing works His Father has given Him to do, not recorded in the book of John. But these works are building up a charismatic, looking for miracles following. And they are curious about Jesus because Jesus is fulfilling their own needs. 
But it is not a spiritual following. They are not following because He is telling them to repent and turn. And they have no awareness of their spiritual need. They're dead in trespasses and sin. But they are. He is building up a following. And in chapters 6 and 7, we're going to see that this following is based upon His miracles and deeds, not based upon their change of heart. And when Jesus... uh, uh, confronts them about their sin, they fall away. So the following is large. As a matter of fact, Jesus perceives the following is so large. Look at verse 15 of chapter 6. This has been going on for the last six months a year, not described in John, but the following is coming. They are zealous for Him because they think He's the Messiah. The physical leader who's going to rest, it's all about them and what he's going to do for them. When Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed from their midst. So this is building up, building up, building up all these signs. But the following of Jesus is external and not internal. And it is not about his kingdom, not about their need for repentance and the kingdom of God, but it is simply based because... It is like today's charismatic movement. It is based upon selfishness, based upon what can He do for me, based upon feelings, all these things. Not why Jesus came. So now we see sign number four. Sign number four. Easy sign. But it's got a lot of detail to it. So I'm going to start this and see how far we go. Sign number four. Remember, there's seven signs before the the death, burial, and resurrection. There's going to be one sign after. We've talked about all these, all their specific purposes. Sign four, uh, pretty simple. Uh, Let's look at this. After these things, after a year, uh, six months to a year, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, Galilee is north, north of Jerusalem, on the northern regions of the uh, nation uh, of Israel. Uh, Chapter 5 was in Jerusalem, south part of the region. So the fact that now he's north, all this has progressed in the last six months to a year. Jesus is going to be rejected in the south, and he's going to be rejected in the north, which says he's rejected everywhere. So this is just a geographical understanding of he went from south to north. He's rejected in both places. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. What did Jesus say about those who wanted to see signs? Question. Evil, adulterous generation want to see signs. Not mixed in faith. Okay? External. And Jesus went up to the mountain. Picture of Moses. Picture of the Old Testament imagery where Moses went up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. This is a picture of Jesus and the Old Testament typography we're going to see richly in this sign. Jesus went up to a mountain and there He sat with the disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, is near. So it's in March, April. Then Jesus lifted up His eyes. He sees a great multitude coming toward Him. He says to Philip, what shall we, 
Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But these he said to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip said, we have 200 denarii. We have eight months. Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread. One denarius is a day's pay. 200 denarii would be eight months pay for a typical person. So it's going to take eight months of pay And then we're still not going to have enough to provide for these people that they may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, said, uh, We have a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make your disciples, make your people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number 5,000. It's estimated there are 20,000 people here. 5,000 men, four per family, including the wives and the kids, at least 20,000 people. And he has five loaves of bread and two small fish. Jesus took the loaves when he had given thanks, distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise to the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them, filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left by those who had not eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, Truly this is the prophet who has come into the world. So we see this sign. All the people gathered for curiosity. Jesus has compassion on them, and he asked a question. Uh, of his disciples, and he asked the question to test the disciples. Now, there is a difference between testing and tempting. Tempting is has a connotation of doing evil, and we know that God never tempts any man for evil, right? So God is not the author of evil, nor does he tempt man to sin. Testing is a different story. And it says he tested, he asked this question to see the response of the disciple. In this case, we see it is Philip. God tests us. Why does he test us? Why does God test us? You're saying something, Russell, what you're saying? Prove what we believe. Prove what we believe. Someone else said to see if our faith is legitimate or not. It is for our benefit because He knows. Okay? But He tests us to prove our faith to prove we believe and to test us. Why else does He test us? To train us. To trust in Him. Tests come in many forms. They come through tribulations. They come through trouble. They come through physical and spiritual challengings. But He tests His people not for His benefit. He knows everything about us. He knows what's really in our heart. But the testing comes, and the testing, the purpose of testing is to change us. Right? To mature us. To to change us. 
and to maturists. Yes, it does. It is a testimony to others. They see what you go through and they see how you react to what you go through. That is a great example and a testimony to believers and unbelievers. So he tests the disciples. He, it says, he, he knows what he's going to do. He's not frustrated. He's not distressed. He's not panicked. He's not uh, concerned about these people that they're going to starve to death. He knew they were coming. He knew they were going to gather. And in other places, He has compassion on them. And He sees them wandering. And He likens them to sheep without a shepherd. And He sees these people groping around in blindness, looking for some miraculous sign out of curiosity. He knows their hearts. So what does He do first? He goes to his people first and he, tell, he, he tests Philip and Andrew. And did they pass the test or fail the test? They failed it miserably. How did they fail? How did the disciples fail the test? What was the first thing out of Philip's mouth and what should he have said? What was the first thing out of himself? We don't have enough. Trusting in his own abilities, his own natural instincts, his own natural proclivities. It's the same thing we do. When we have an ailment, when we have someone dying, when we have issues, it is a natural proneness of us if we're not walking in the Spirit to say, how can I solve the problem? Right? That's what we all do, admit it or not. But as God matures us and He advances us and as we abide in Him and we're walking in His Spirit and we're, we're obedient to the Word and we're in the Word and we're praying, the answer to the test is on our face before the Lord, right? The disciples, where are we going to buy bread that we may eat? This is a desperate situation. I'm being tested. I've been asked a question, and this is going to prove to me that I'm not going to the right person for the answers. I'm going to my own self, right? So Philip fails the test. Where are we going to buy bread? The implication is this is hopeless. We can't solve the problem. What should he have said? Well, Andrew came up with a suggestion. Yes. He's a step above. He's a step above. He had a little bit of faith, huh? We got we got this. The implication is you can take this and bless it. But Philip, hey, where are we gonna what are we gonna do? They failed the test. Philip should have said, the right answer is you're the son of God, you'll take care of it. You tell me what you're gonna do, right? But that is how we respond to tests. And this is a strong indica indication of where we are. So don't get on Philip's case or Andrew's case because every one of us have done the exact same thing, right? And may God have mercy on us that we will pass the test and say, it is amazing to me how the closer you 
the more mature you are in Christ, the more you trust Him, the more He grows your faith by this old book, the first thing you do is you fall on your face, right? Uh, and if you don't pass the test, you see grace. You see grace. Did He condemn Philip and Andrew? Did He say, you idiots? No. He didn't respond at all. All the time the disciples fail, they fail, they fail, they fail. Jesus always is compassionate and He's merciful to them because they're His children, they're His kids, and He loves them. And He's growing them. And He is conforming all of us to His image. And when we fail the test, which we have and we will do, He's merciful, right? So it's... Yes, he does. He takes what Andrew has. Yeah, which is interesting. But then he still struggled. But what are they among so many? He said, this is what I got. But it's not going to work. But it's not going to work. It's still not enough. Yes. Our, our view is here. It's horizontal, and He wants us to look to Him in full trust. And I, yes. you know, so gracious to give us opportunity. Yes. Over the years to find Him faithful. Yes. So that game goes there maybe a little more quickly. Yes. Yes. From a practical sense, He was strengthening His disciples. Yes, he was. He was preparing them for what was to come slowly, patiently, with love and grace. And that's how he works in our life also. That's the way he does us. Slowly but surely, incrementally. Yes. And he grows the faith. Yes. He also included the disciples in the miracle. Yes, he did. And I'm getting to that. Thank you. <laughs> so we see this, and, uh, uh, and as uh, Carol has said, he tests them, but then he, he allows them to participate. And all of us, he graciously allows us to participate And you can extrapolate this. This participation that he allowed his disciples to... He told his people to sit down. He told them to distribute the food. He told them to gather up the fragments that remain. This participation is just a picture of our participation in his kingdom. We are his ministers. We are his ambassadors. We are his hands. We are his feet. And we are called to be faithful to what he is accomplishing, right? We don't accomplish the miracles. We don't save anybody, but we are looking to the fields and prayerfully He's given us eyes that see their white in the harvest. And we are participating. Why He includes me and us to participate in His kingdom has always baffled me. Seems to me so inefficient. Why doesn't He just... Because He's glorified in the weak vessels, isn't He? 
Yes, sir. Hasn't he always done that? Though? He's always and done from that. From the beginning. From the beginning to the end. Fishermen. He's used murderers. He's used unauthorized <laughs> people with not very much character, and has changed from Moses. He's used left-handed people and women. And I was raising my right hand. Left-handed people and women, which was unheard of in the Old Testament. Imagine that. All of us. He uses a crook. What was the saying? He uses a crooked stick uh, to accomplish it. Whatever that was. But well, he does know who's the strongest. I mean. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Yes. When we see how he provided for the people right after this test, I mean, it's God's faithfulness. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you see how he changes them. Now, see, I'm like Gideon. I'd be like, okay, first this is what I want you to do. Well, I don't know. Anything could have happened there. So now I need you to do this. But in the end... I mean, you know, he, he did exactly what God instructed and, and used less. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Great stories. I just want the ones that lap with their hands, not the ones that get on their face and drink out of the river. I want the lappers. That's a whole nother lesson. Participate. Now, I want to... I wanna, and what he does now is this... The purpose of this parable is to show, of course, this is a creative miracle. And it is a creative miracle, as MacArthur says, that dovetails with the first miracle, which was a creative miracle. And so we, the first miracle is wine, a creative miracle. The second creative miracle is bread. MacArthur says in the notes, and I think it's interesting, matter of fact, he uses the word interesting, that both the creative miracles of turning the water into wine and multiplying the bread speak of the main elements of the Lord's Supper or Table of Communion. When we get to verse 53, it's going to sum up all of this. The purpose of this sign and the purpose of... Uh, uh, the main purpose of this sign is verse 53 is the intimacy. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no bread. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. This purpose of this is preparatory. It is a creative, it is a creative mem- uh, miracle of bread goes along with the first creative miracle of wine, both typify and point to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, okay? So this is a preparatory, and the main gist of it is going to be, I am the bread of life. And so it's no accident that the emphasis is on the five barley loaves, not the two small fish, but it's the bread. And this is going to be brought home in his, uh, on his, in his commentary on I'm on the bread of life, and so we're going to get into that next week. But it is preparatory, creative miracle, dovetails with the first creative miracle, wine, both pointing to communion, fellowship, intimacy with Christ. We'll talk about that in great detail. Everybody understand that? And the thing that the, 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 the most important uh, point of this parable is buried in verse 12. 
And this is going to be expanded in verse 38. This is a preparatory sign. And the important thing is not that he created the bread and provided for the multitude. The important thing is, look what he says, gather the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. This is the physical meaning. The spiritual meaning is verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me that all he has given me, I should lose nothing. So just as all of the bread was gathered and not one crumb was wasted or lost, so Christ's purpose to come to the earth is to die for those the Father gave Him to accomplish the Father's will. And every single person that the Father has given the Son to save is saved. And not one of them is lost. Wow, huh? That is the preparatory primary purpose is to show Jesus is the bread of life, the manna from heaven. We're going to look at all these types next week. But if you don't catch anything, catch that, that every single fragment of every single is saved and preserved. And so we understand that that is going to teach us great spiritual truths about why Jesus came. Okay? And we'll talk about doctrines of grace and we'll even cross the great bridge of particular redemption. <laughs> Comments, questions. We'll, 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 we'll hit sign five, which is very short. We'll hit that, but then we're going to get into the bread from heaven and uh, we're going to really hit that hard what that means, what it doesn't mean, what intimacy means, what it means to to eat the blood, um, eat the bread and drink the blood. It's not cannibalism. <coughs> Comments or questions?